Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Son Gray. My guest today is the swashbuckling 43rd governor of Arkansas, the Honorable Jim Guy Tucker. If ever there was a comeback kid, it is Jim Guy Jr., born tall, handsome, and smart. He graduated from Harvard, then joined the Marines. After finishing at the top of his class in officer candidate training, Jim Guy was honorably discharged due to health concerns. Not to be deterred, he adventurously hopped a freight liner to Southeast Asia, where he entrenched himself for two years as a freelance Vietnam War correspondent. He later came home and wrote the book, Arkansas Men of War. As governor of Arkansas, he was wrongly accused by Kenneth Starr of mail fraud during the Watergate investigations of President Clinton. With failing health caused by a life-threatening autoimmune disease, he pled guilty to a lesser charge all the while awaiting a liver transplant. This unfortunate bargaining may have saved his life, but it cost him his political career. Years later, after finding nothing to charge him of, the case was dropped, and he received an apology letter and a refund check from the United States government. The felony charge remains on his record. And if that's not interesting enough, there is even more. But I will let our former Arkansas prosecuting attorney, state attorney general, lieutenant governor, congressman, and 43rd governor tell you for himself. It is a pleasure an honor and a special treat to welcome to the table, Honorable Jim Guy Tucker, Jr. Well, thanks a lot. Delighted to be with you. So we were talking before the show, and I called you the comeback kid, and you're like, what are you talking about? My life is great. I've had the most wonderful life in the whole world. I kind of listed a few things like I just did, and you're like, oh, my life is wonderful. He's got the best attitude of anybody I know. For our listeners who are scratching their head, at the swashbuckler adjective that I stole from Ernie Dumas's book and used to describe you, let me define the term. A swashbuckler is a heroic archetype in European adventure literature that is typified by the use of a sword, acrobatics, and chivalric ideas. But it didn't begin with you. Your grandfather was a city marshal. Well, my, my father's father uh, uh, was Guy B. Tucker, Guy Beckwith Tucker. <clears throat> and he was later active in politics and uh, went to the Democratic Convention and nominated Wilson for Arkansas uh, back in 1912. Uh, but my father was born in 1892, so it's uh, a long time ago. And my grandfather was city marshal of El Dorado. It was a rough town at the time, and uh, they had a feud between the Tuckers and the Parnells in addition to his serving as the city marshal. Uh, and they had a horrible shootout. The Arkansas Gazette carried a big headline saying Marshall killed, and uh, in, in fact, he should have been. Uh, but he did survive and continued being Marshall. Uh, later was elected uh, state commissioner of lands and uh, uh, then got on into politics. But he was ambushed uh, before that uh, while he was Marshall. He was riding back out to their little house uh, outside of El Dorado, uh, 
in, in, uh, on a little creek north of the city and uh, was ambushed and uh, had his left arm blown off. My father was on horseback behind him and had been scolded on a previous trip for dropping some of the mail. But he held on to this mail, and he explained <laughs> to his father that he hadn't lost any mail. <laughs> but uh, he survived that and then uh, moved to Little Rock and uh, uh, was active, as I say, in politics there. So m- my genes on that side run pr- back pretty far. My grandfather on my mother's side was named uh, uh, White, F.O. White, and he was county judge in uh, White County in Searcy for uh, about 15, 16 years. And he was succeeded by a fellow who came home from Harvard and and uh, beat him in the election. And his name was Wilbur Mills. Wow. And that is whom I ended up succeeding when he left Congress, when he resigned or, or did not run for re-election in Congress. I, I followed him. And uh, he had always been nice to me, and we were friends uh, during was, my lifetime. Was your father-in-law still alive? Uh, no, my father. Uh, so he didn't my, get to see my you. Grand, my grandfather died uh, in uh, 1922, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, my my father died uh, in 1960. But Mr. White didn't get to see you uh, take oh, over Wilbur D. Mills' seat. No, he did not. He was gone long before that. Um, in your fact, father. He, he uh-huh. died in front of me at breakfast when he was at our little rent house on Stonewall Road. Uh, 5413 Stonewall. It was a little tiny brick house, tiny place. We had a couple of chickens in the backyard, and Dad would wring their necks for Sunday breakfast. Uh, I'd go watch a headless chicken run around back there. But the uh, he he was eating breakfast with me one one morning uh, when he was visiting and had a heart attack and died uh, there in front of me. People that don't know, Stonewall is now right in front of the country club. Is the street uh, that well, runs. it. it Runs close. This is uh, this was two blocks from what was in the Heights Theater, but the the uh, the house that's replaced it is immense. A mansion. And it's probably a so million, you were ringing chickens' necks in the back. <laughs> yeah, you're ringing chickens' necks back right up there in the Heights. But which I, yeah, is I went of, to Forest Park. Uh, mm-hmm. It was three blocks away. Mm-hmm. Great, great school. Wonderful teachers. Had a lot of. Uh, it was all women teachers, but they were mostly women whose husbands had gone off to World War II in Korea. Uh, so they they were beautifully educated and were great teachers, uh, but mm-hmm. their husbands were not there. Uh, one of them's husband was killed. Mm-hmm. Your yeah. father was World War One. He he fought in World War and One. That's right. He was in the Meuse Argonne and Saint Mihiel of Metzif. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, so yeah. in the opening, I called you the comeback kid, which I mentioned earlier, and you said, "I'm not the comeback kid. I've got the best life in the world." But let's just start with number one. After Harvard, you joined the Marines, only to be honorably discharged for stomach ulcers, but determined to serve. You still found a way to Vietnam on a tramp steamer. A tramp steamer. Tell us about that. Well, the uh, first the uh, disease I had was. Uh, uh, what's called an autoimmune disease, so your immune system decides to attack itself. And they didn't know that probably back then. No, they they barely recognized it, but they, they decided there was some problem. I had joined, joined uh, the Marines in 1961, my freshman year in college, uh, and uh, so I was in the Marine Reserve, and when I finished Quantico and we did our final physical, uh, they picked it up and, and uh, ultimately... They they ranked me 4F, but I appealed, and uh, 
after I had started practice law, I won my appeal. They reclassified <laughs> me 1A, but I had been to Vietnam twice by that point, and I didn't much feel like going back. So, <laughs> so you, but you did go back. You got on a, I, on I, a I, tramp steamer, well, which is a yeah. freight liner. I, I, I got on a ship called the Beaver State uh, out of San Francisco, and uh, I, I was a wiper. I wiped stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> so like swab the decks and and they let me steer the ship one time uh and they enjoyed it immensely they after i'd steered it for five minutes or so they they uh took over the wheel and they uh, asked me to step out back and have a look at my pathway I said how do you look at your pathway and it was midnight and we we're crossing from san francisco you north go north and then come down the the uh, eastern side of china to uh, our ports we were headed to but the sea is full of phosphorescence, so when the ship passes, you end up with this bright silver trail that guides you, uh, except my silver trail looked like a silver rope that was coiled <laughs> from my back and forth trying to stay on course. Tim Guy, uh, you have done so much. Uh, it was fun. I, I had a How great are life you? growing up. How old are you? Uh, well, I am now in my 77th now, year, then, which you... means I'm 76. I've got a birthday in June. No, I mean when you were doing the steam, the, the steam, the freight liner. Uh, I was uh, uh, 21. So you're a freelance. This is pretty adventurous. You just take off. Yeah. You're uh, not. You're not hired by anybody you're like i think i'll just get on this boat and well, go down there and see what happens i, w- I was still young and immortal that's uh, right so just just go do it so what did you do uh, when you got there well the uh the the stops i made were instructive the first place i stopped was in uh japan uh and uh, yokohama as i recall but anyway it was a city that had been just devastated by the bombs now, this is 1964, uh, or 65, it had just turned 65, and uh, the city was still a pile of rubble, uh, and the people that were moving around, you know, they'd been blasted, and some of them had horrible injuries from nuclear explosions. And, mm-hmm. uh, so if you want a real picture of war, how Japan looked after World War II, would have given it to you at that time. I then went over to Pusan, Korea, uh, which had been a, the site of a horrible battle during the Korean War, and it looked just about the same. Uh, so that was instructive as I headed on down south. Uh, I was supposed to teach at Thomasot University, but I uh, ran into the editor of a newspaper down there who visited with me, and he, he said, you ought to go to Vietnam. And uh, he called over, and so I went over and got a job at the Saigon Post in Saigon and uh, uh, started traveling to all over the country uh, for uh, stories on the war as it was progressing. Who were you with? Were you with the military? Uh, no, I was a civilian. Uh, I had a. Do you a, speak I, Vietnamese? I could not speak Vietnamese, but uh, very few of uh, of the uh, troops there could uh, I, I learned a little bit while I was there but the uh, uh, I, w- I had a I was an accredited reporter and I had a ID card and a uniform and a helmet and uh, a vest and uh, I traveled I, I was 
in every section of the country. It was divided into I-Corps, II-Corps, III-Corps, IV-Corps, and so forth. Uh, but I spent time in every one of the areas of Vietnam. How um, did it change you? Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I remembered the John Wayne movies and the great heroics of uh, folks in battle running over the uh, enemy and surviving everything. Uh, and this was a very quick lesson in uh, what a lie that was. Uh, wars are absolutely horrible. We have them going on even today all over the world. And uh, you frequently have people who are rooting for wars, and uh, these tend to be folks who have no idea uh, of what they're talking about. They just think they're tough and they've got big guns and that uh, let's go to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and your kids go, not horrible, mine. <laughs> it's a horrible thing, horrible thing. So you come back from Vietnam. What's the first thing you do? Uh, well, I uh, had been admitted to law school, so uh, I, I went to my first year of law school at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Worked at a fill-in station, uh, uh, the Conoco station. I worked uh, 18 hours on Sundays. I, I'd go in Sunday morning at 6 a.m., Late morning, I'd wash the vomit from the boyfriends out of the sorority girls' cars. Oh, and, no. And, <laughs> no, I uh, didn't expect that. And I didn't have to pack, uh, uh, fill much gas because uh, it was just a slow day, but he needed he needed someone in the station, and I could study virtually all the time. And I left locked up at midnight and went home. And then I worked at another service station just three days a week. But uh, that made me a, a little bit of money. But I was still wanting to go roam some more, so uh, I went to, uh, I was admitted, uh, asked to come to uh, Beirut. So I went to Beirut that summer, summer 66, uh, to teach at American University at Beirut. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I went down to Israel too, but of course they are adjacent to each other. But in order to go to Israel at that time, I had to fly out to Cyprus uh, and then then fly back into Israel, and I, they stamped a piece of paper. If they stamped my passport, I couldn't get back into uh, Lebanon. Uh, but I, I laid on that island waiting for my time for my plane to come, and I had to go back to the airport. And I had a little bottle of wine, or a sack of wine, and I had, a, uh, had some wonderful fruit from the tree, and I sat under that tree on Cyprus and sipped that and thought the world is good. Went on to uh, Israel and got a sense of the wars and the problems there. Went back to Lebanon, and uh, but decided what I needed to do was go ahead and finish law school. So I did go back to to uh, Fayetteville again in late September. Uh, did that year of law school, and uh, I wasn't working at the service station. I was concentrating on on uh, making my learning the law and making my grades. Uh, but uh, then the, the next summer came along, and I had really been pondering the, uh, the wars and the war zones I'd seen. And so I decided to go back to Vietnam. So uh, a group of 13 or 14 newspapers here in the state all hired me, uh, and each paid a little bit of the money. And I flew back to Vietnam and went to find Arkansas soldiers who were there in the various war zones. And so later I put all those stories together in a little book called Arkansas Men at War. But they were all stories uh, stories I had written in Vietnam. Had a fellow named Roger Armbrust back here in Little Rock who edited 
uh, what I sent back to him and, and what was published in the papers. So uh, then I came back to law school and started practice with the Rose Law Firm in 1968. That's a good story. So you also went on police raids when you well, got when back. Well, I, when I was a brand-new prosecutor, I got elected prosecutor uh, in 1970, uh, campaigned with uh, Dale Bumpers, was running for governor that year. Uh, but I had... I had uh, I had met uh, Winthrop Rockefeller uh, when he was running for governor. Uh, and uh, I, I'll tell you that story when you're ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Tell me the story of meeting Winthrop. We, what, well, what did we say Arnie Dumas said about Winthrop Rockefeller, he, misunderstood? or? Well, he, he was from New York and had been here, and he did some wonderful things. And uh, uh, I really liked him, and he liked me. And uh, when he became governor, John Haley, who was a lawyer at the Rose Law Firm where I was practicing, came in to see me one day and asked me how I'd like to go to prison. And I said, explain yourself, my friend. (laughs) Uh, He he had been appointed uh, chairman of the Board of Corrections by uh, Rockefeller. Uh, And at that time, the the inmates ran the penitentiary uh, effectively. And they had weapons. the trustees had weapons in the towers, and they were the guards as well. But people were being released uh, when they earlier than they should have been released. So uh, Haley asked me to uh, if I'd go down and be a prisoner and take a little bit of money in with me, uh, that enough that would catch a little bit of attention and see what happened because. They thought they knew how how these po- folks were being released so you're, early. Are you you are the attorney general now, no, or I'm you are practice, still working at the Rose Law Firm? Just a, just a guy. Yeah, I'm, and and uh, he was he was a partner there. I was a brand new attorney and didn't know what I was doing. Half and, the time. and he said, "Hey, I heard you're a swashbuckler. Why don't you go down there and go to jail, be undercover yeah. at the state so, penitentiary?" So I went in, and the uh, the job I had, I was only there two days because went to Rockefeller, the governor Rockefeller found out what Haley had done and he was he was madder than heck, told him to get me out of there. But uh, my job was uh, cleaning uh, chickens and uh, I walked into this small room of just, you know, maybe 12 feet by 12 feet maximum, a huge table in the middle and there was this uh, other convict in there in a stark white uniform i mean his uniform was spotless and he was deeply angry and he was cursing and as the chickens came in he took this huge meat cleaver and raised it over his head and whack it came down and chicken guts and stuff went everywhere and i had a decent sized cleaver and i was over there going (laughs) and being pretty damn gentle and i asked him what he was so angry about and uh he said that uh, he had his parole hearing that day and he'd made some of the trustees angry. And so they sent him to do this job before he went in for his parole hearing uh, and he was in for a violent crime. So he went in covered in blood, literally covered in blood and guts. Uh, he did not get a parole. Oh. Uh, later on, while I was there, uh, 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 a trustee approached me and, and asked me if I'd like to get out a little early, and I said I sure would. <laughs> and, uh, 
he said, well, I, uh, I noticed how much uh, money you brought in. You got that receipt with you? And I said, yeah. He said, if you'll let me have that receipt, I'll uh, make a little arrangement back there so your records look like it's time to let you out. And uh, that's what they were doing. Uh, they, they had custody of the records that determined when you were released under the control of the prisoners instead of at a different location and separated. That's so, not rocket scientists not to do that. Yeah, that was amazing. But at any rate, uh, that was my only experience. Then, then, uh, and you were uh, called James Gus Turner. Yeah, I wanted you went to in have under a, the name alias James yeah. Gus Turner. I wanted to use the same name I had or something very close to it so that if somebody spoke to me, uh, I would react to the name. Oh, and smart so, undercover. So, so that's, that's why I was. See, I read that, that and thought, well, that's not very smart. You used a name almost like his, but yep. now I understand the philosophy behind that. Yep. You also went in there to clean up kind of some police corruption, I think, didn't you? Was there some police corruption, too? Was that Well, the, for example, you know, just to give you a sense of it, uh, we're all familiar with the Marion Hotel and how wonderful it is here in town that the Stevens have fixed up so nicely. Well, that's the Capitol Hotel. But uh, the I'm said, was, I'm call, I called it the Marion. The Marion was I'm, across I'm, the street. I meant the Capitol. Yeah. The Marion was across mm-hmm. the street. Uh, but at the Capitol Hotel, uh, uh, I kept being told uh, the, the east end of town, uh, where the Clinton Center is and the buildings in there were just there. It was so bad. We had at least one sh- shooting, assault, or rape down there every night of the week. So our docket was full. Jail was full, and and the police had put ten over the window so they couldn't shout out the window at people going by, and they'd taken the mattress off the beds because they'd tear them up so they were sleeping on springs. You're talking about the at the jail down there that on was the county jail that, yes. that is now gone. Mm-hmm. It sat where the park is on, mm-hmm. on the river there now. But in any event, one day I was walking past the Marion Hotel with my chief, chief deputy, uh, Robert J. Brown, and uh, uh I said, let's just stick our head in here. So I went to the desk and asked to see their their register if they didn't mind. I said, I can go get a warrant, but if you don't object, I'll look at your register. And he said, oh, no, you can look at it. And he turned it around. And uh, The customers had unusually short stays uh, and unusually similar names. By short stays, I mean an hour. Uh, so this was a house of prostitution. There was a pool hall down there and a bar. But the hotel itself was a house of prostitution. And they were about seven blocks from the police station and the chief of police. And so I went from there to the chief of police office, and we had a serious misunderstanding about uh, how things needed to run in the criminal justice system. There was a backlog of about 2,000 cases waiting trial. And because we didn't have any public defender uh, or uh, system, uh, we did pass one one. While you were Subsequently, there. While, mm-hmm. I, while I was governor, while I was attorney general, actually. Uh, but the cases just backed up because the uh, uh, folks who'd been charged were waiting to be able to get their families to pay a fee to the lawyers who were representing them. Uh, and it took forever. And uh, so you just had this horrible, horrible backup in county facilities that people who should have either been released or sent to the state prison. So your career is spans from 73 to 96 with a break in there and we're not going to talk about the break that's when you were in asia but 
you were the former Arkansas prosecuting attorney that we've been talking about, the state attorney general, the lieutenant governor, a congressman, and the 43rd governor. In 1973 to 1979, you were prosecuting attorney and the state attorney. Then you took a a break because you ran for, I think, I ran. I was a term, I was prosecutor uh, for one term, uh, seventy one, seventy two, and then attorney general for two terms. These were two year terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly Wilbur Mills resigned or didn't resign, but he didn't run for reelection for Congress. So I ran and was elected and was on the Ways and Means Committee. And then we had John McClellan die, and his Senate seat came up. Uh, so David Pryor and I and Ray Thornton and a fourth person all ran. And uh, the race was extremely close. All three of uh, David and, and uh, Ray Thornton and I got the same major percentage of the votes, that is 33%. But the fourth guy got a little less than 1% of the vote. And so uh, I was in a runoff with David, but it was because I had a tiny edge over Ray Thornton. And Ray and David had a tiny edge over me, but he beat me in the runoff. Uh, we remained good friends, and uh, are still friends today. Uh, but that was. Uh, and so I, then you went into becoming a businessman. And uh, well, I, I I started law practice uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, again after that. I'd I'd had a lot of legal experience at that point. Tried some big cases. Um, and got to try some even even bigger cases. But Mitchell Williams Law Firm hired me, and I became a partner in Mitchell Williams, Seelig, Jackson, and Tucker, and uh, I did litigation. But in the meantime, my, my wife, who also was a lawyer, uh, she just graduated from law school, uh, uh, started uh, practicing law, but one of our clients was a guy who wanted to build a cable TV system, and cable TV was brand new. So we started building one. Uh, we started, uh, we we had a table set up at a filling station in, in, near Mall Mill, which was just being built at that time. And uh, we started selling subscriptions, and we had a, a little tower and cable that would run. And uh, Betty and I went off for a ski trip to Denver. And when we came back, we went to the post office to see if we'd gotten any checks in, any payments in. And uh, I opened the, our mailbox, and it said, see Postmaster. There was a little note that said, see Postmaster, nothing else. So I went down to the Postmaster and gave him that, and he came back out with this sack that was absolutely full of checks. And <laughs> Betty and I opened it. We didn't open you know, We opened it, and here were all these checks. They weren't big checks, but there were a lot of them. Uh-huh. And uh, we looked at each other. And we said, let's go do a little driving and see where else we might build cable systems. So we we built everything on the edge of Little Rock and North Little Rock, built a circle around it, almost a total circle around it. And then we built uh, part of uh, a, a little town north of here, uh, north of Little Rock. And uh, then uh, we built, uh, I went down, I was trying a case in uh, down in Texas, and uh, one of the guys on the city council was from Benton, Arkansas. And uh, I started talking to him. Uh, he was on the city council of South Lake, Texas. And we started building systems down there. So we built 
all or parts of most of the cities north of DFW, and you know how huge they oh, are yeah. now. Mm-hmm. And then we bought a little system down in Florida, and uh, the, all of a sudden we started getting offers to buy these, and they were paying $4,000 per subscriber, and we had a lot of subscribers. And uh, I said, yep, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. Did you sell them all? And we, we sold all the U.S. ones, and uh, the, uh, then uh, I'd gotten a call uh, about a guy who had died, and they told me he had a lot of franchises in, in England. I won't go through the long story, but we did a contract on a napkin in New York uh, with his trustee uh, with dinner, and uh, we got a franchise for London, uh, parts of London and Wales. So we went over and looked at that and built parts of the system over there. And uh, later that got merged with another company, and that was profitable. We tried very hard to build a system in southern France. Betty had lived in France. Loved it. And gone to school as a child. When her father was called back up for the Korean War, he, he uh, uh, was uh, chief officer at an Air Force base there. But at any rate, she, she loved France from her time there as mm-hmm. a child. Several years went to local public school and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we tried to make that system work, but it didn't. And many years later, I got visited by, by some folks who lived in Indonesia, and they asked me uh, if I'd help them build a system in Indonesia. So uh, uh, later on, when I had recovered from one of the surgeries, uh, the last surgery I had, the liver transplant, we went to Jakarta, and we built uh, uh, all of Jakarta and Surabaya and Bali. Bali was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of them. We built not only cable systems, but by then we were building uh, internet systems at the same time. And uh, we had a uh, a condo in uh, Hong Kong, and uh, so we lived in Hong Kong most of the time, and that's when we did the heifer project work up there. Great stories. i got to tell everybody that you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the Honorable Jim Guy Tucker, 43rd Governor of Arkansas. So come back, kid number two. We already did number one. You were a Marine, and you went, and you had an honorable discharge, but you still managed to go over there as a war correspondent. Number two, you lose the governor's race to Bill Clinton that you mentioned. Well, no, we hadn't talked about the governor's race, have we? Yeah, no, I I, I got beat by, by Bill for governor, but, uh, well, I didn't get beat by Bill for governor. I started to run against him for governor. Maybe I got uh, I did get beat for, by him for governor. And then you ran for but, lieutenant but, governor. But, but later, I started to run again because he was clearly going to run for president. And then I thought, you know, I believe he's going to win the president. See, I'm going to run for lieutenant. You're the only person that thought that. Lieutenant governor. So I ran for lieutenant governor. He got elected, and I became governor. One of the hardest things about the lieutenant governorship at that time was the Arkansas Constitution provided that if the governor was out of the state— the lieutenant governor became governor. Now, this was written, you know, back in the 1800s, and when people left the state, they were out of communication. So when someone's running for president, they're being watched by the press all the time, and he was leaving the state all the time to run for governor. So you have his staff there who've worked with him, and he's the governor, but officially he can't sign anything. Uh, He can't do anything that is a governor's decision 
while he is out of the state. And if he does, somebody who's against him is going to catch it. Yeah. And they're going to hatch it. <laughs> catch it and hatch it. And, yeah. Uh, so uh, I was, so you, you were I, acting I, governor. Yeah, I, I, it was almost impossible. My law firm let me go serve, and I presided over the state senate as well. Uh, but it was increasingly interfering, and finally it became so bad he was just almost gone permanently. So I simply resigned from the law firm, so I didn't have a conflict. And uh, and there and, can't be as much money being the lieutenant governor or the governor as being a uh, corporate president of a cable company. That, that's that's right. So you really spent ten years building this cable business. And then you come back. I don't understand why, and go back into political. Well, I, I like I, I liked uh, public service. You and, did. Uh, the uh, I, I think it's a wonderful thing for people to do, uh, who who have an interest <laughs> and want to learn about a lot of different things and try and make education, for example, which was my primary concern, better or other things better. They have the opportunity to try and do it. Describe politics in those days. It's not like it is today. Describe how politics was then. Well, when I first started politics in 1970, the uh, it was it was uh, a completely different thing. It was Wild West. Uh, it pretty much was the, Didn't you the shoot? ballots. The the uh, you know the ballots. Uh, I, I went in to see a guy in over in East Arkansas who was big plantation owner, and I. We'd done our counting of how many votes we needed where, and in his precinct or his area of the of the county, if I could just get, you know, a handful of votes, I'd be thrilled. But I wanted more than one percent. If I could get eighteen, nineteen percent, I'd be thrilled. So he was sitting in his chair with his jodfers up on the desk and his stetson pushed back on his head, and he had a riding crop he was slapping his thigh with. And he said, well, Tucker, he said, you're a nice-looking young man. He said, we're going to give you, and he pushed his Stetson back a little further with his riding crop. He said, we're going to give you about 18% of the vote. <laughs> I said, Mr. So-and-so, sir, I sure do appreciate that. <laughs> and I left, and that's precisely what I got in his precinct over there. Uh, so yeah. that was one example of, of things that happened all over the state. It was before voting booths. Uh, racial uh, mistreatment was rampant still mm-hmm. at the time, and uh, we've changed dramatically. But it was not an attractive thing to see, but it did inspire me to want to change what I saw. And uh, that's the sort of thing I got to work on as time went by, is changing that kind of politics. Winthrop Rockefeller had the biggest impact on changing that, and he was followed then by Dale Bumpers, and and then he was followed by David Pryor. Great. And he was followed by Bill Clinton and every one of those governors, and I came along after that. All of us wanted to clean that election system up and get the state no longer engaging in that, and we did. You and Bill Clinton were on the same side, but by the end of your – but by the end you had become rivals. Don't you think? Well, we we were we were rivals uh, when I ran against him and uh, when I was serving as his lieutenant governor. But we actually became real allies, and uh, we we had the same viewpoint on virtually all issues that were out there. Mm-hmm. Y'all remind me of each other a lot. 
<laughs> uh, okay, come back, kid. Three. While acting governor of Arkansas, you became ill with a life-threatening autoimmune disease. They'd finally diagnosed it, which you eventually got a liver transplant for, and you're here today. It was great news. Christmas Day of 1996. Were you one of the first Arkansans to go to the Mayo Clinic and get a liver transplant? I, I would have been one of the first ones. I wasn't, wasn't the first. I know some of the fellows who were, but I was among the first to have a liver transplant, yes. So here is the the conversation that everybody has been waiting for. Come back number four. While awaiting a liver donor, the Whitewater investigations ensued while you were governor. In your 1996 interview, you denied all wrongdoing and went on to say about Kenneth Starr process that it is a selective prosecution driven by Bill Clinton being president. Hmm. Well, driven by Bill Clinton being president is correct. They were after Bill Clinton. Uh, Kenneth Starr, who was once more back in the news, uh, will recall his tenure at Baylor University, and uh, folks don't remember it, go online and have a look at it and how it ended. Uh, That's the kind of fellow I viewed him as being. Well, how did it end? You've got to tell me just quickly. I don't even know. Well, the the, uh, honesty is the issue. And the first uh, indictment they obtained against me, I was stunned. Uh, it, it alleged this huge tax loss uh, to the government of $3 million-plus. Uh, and the, uh, the question was, uh, the indictment didn't mention what statute uh, existed that created that kind of tax loss. They had this great conspiracy they described, but, okay, well, to calculate it uh, and see how you get, how do you get there. And the Republican judges that I had, the Democrats had all recused because they knew me and there were conflicts, would not make Kenneth Starr tell us what statute he was using. Uh, Finally, uh, many years later, when the Justice Department took over the case, Kenneth Starr disappeared. They admitted uh, in court that uh, uh, which which tax statute applied and they admitted that they might owe me a refund rather than my owing them $3 million. And I said, I want that refund. I said, you, you can give me around all you want to with penalties and stuff, but I want the refund. And so I've got the check. It was, I think, $1.99 or something that they gave me. Uh, but you, I, I, hung, you, I hung it on my wall. You framed it. I framed it, and it's hanging there now. Dollar ninety nine. But, but, I mean, that's pretty incredible. You charge uh, a sitting governor. I was a sitting governor when they charged me with a crime. Now, why would they do that? Well, uh, the tax law that existed at that time, had I been found guilty, would have given me a sentence of like uh, ten years. Uh, because it was based in part on the amount of the loss, and it was mandatory, and the judge could not reduce it. Uh, you had to give that kind of sentence. Uh, and what they wanted me to do was to remember a conversation that I heard between Bill Clinton and David Hale, which I simply never heard. There was no such thing. But uh, they were trying to assure uh, that uh, they could get Bill Clinton. So that's what 
those prosecutions were about, and I was not helpful to them because he did not do anything that they wanted me to testify to, period. They wanted you to lie to save your skin. Damn right. And uh, Susan McDougall did the same thing, right? They did the same thing to Susan McDougall, yes. And to her husband? As far as I know. And to her husband? No, her husband was, in fact, involved in in crimes. Oh, he was? And uh, he may not have thought of it as being criminal. I, I don't know. I had been, he had, he had had an initial criminal trial and he had asked me to testify on his behalf, but he had in fact taken money from me. He'd, he'd, he'd signed my name to a bunch of deeds that we were joint property owners on. And, uh, when the money was paid, he did not use it to pay off the mortgages. Uh, and so when he asked me to testify for him, I told him I couldn't do it. Is that what Whitewater was about? Uh, it was about one of the others, but yes, it was about real estate that he and Bill Clinton, uh, that Bill Clinton was a part owner in up in North Arkansas. That he had again and I don't, sold. I don't know what he did with that with, with Bill Clinton, but what he did not do uh, is have a conversation in front of me mm-hmm. or around me or mm-hmm. tell me about it or anything mm-hmm. else. Uh, they figured that I disliked Clinton so much because he'd beat me uh, because I'd been his lieutenant governor uh, and had some arguments with his staff about how who was governor when he was out of state. They thought I would testify against him uh, and that I'd be happy and willing to go along in return for a reduced uh, or a dismissal even of charges, and uh, they just guessed wrong. But you did. Because you were in poor health at the time, awaiting a liver transplant, you did decide to plead to a lesser crime. On, on the tax case, yeah. Thus, um, giving well, you probation I, to stay at your house for four years? Were you? No, no it's more complicated than oh. that. There, there was another, to the, that was first indictment, and it got the tax case, and it got dismissed by Judge Henry Woods. Starr then uh, wanted uh, Woods to... Uh, be dismissed from the case because he was a, a Democrat. He didn't say that, but he mm-hmm. was a Democrat. Um, but uh, he was friends with uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. And, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, they wanted that case dismissed. I went to the Eighth Circuit, and it didn't get reinstated until after I had been through through a trial on another charge. And by that time, I was so sick uh, that I did not testify in the case. Uh, I I went up to Mayo Clinic after the jury came in. And had I testified, I think I would have been acquitted. But had I testified, I was at risk of being cross-examined on the tax case, which they had still not admitted what tax statute they were using. So it was a it was a hard call for me and for the attorneys who were advising me. But the stress level would have probably been too much for your health at the time. So you saved your life, most likely. Uh, when... Bill Clinton was president. He pardoned Susan McDougal. Yes. Uh, he, no. Uh, yes. Yes. He he did give a pardon to Susan. But he did not you. Not to me. Uh, he he gave a pardon to some multi multi millionaire that yeah. got a lot of bad press, and I doubt if he could have pardoned me without taking uh, a lot of problems with it again. So even though they never found anything, because you did 
I was surprised that because you did plead to a lesser crime, they went ahead and kept the felon there and you did not get pardoned from it. And <laughs> that's right. It's still there. So I want to tell everybody you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. And I'm speaking today with the Honorable Jim Guy Tucker, 43rd governor of Arkansas. And he is a successful international businessman. And he was the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, the congressman, the and our and our forty third governor, who has in two thousand and twelve began donating your photos, your personal papers, and your documents to UALR, and currently there are over one thousand boxes that have been donated, archived, and are made public. And you said, I think this is funny, what you said. I know a lot of folks have the staff and the resources to have their boxes and stuff edited thoroughly before they deliver them, and I've not been able to do that very much. What was in there was what was in there. He went on to say, I tried to glance at it, but I'm sure there'll be some surprises, and undoubtedly there'll be something that's embarrassing at some point. I tried to avoid putting letters from my old girlfriends in there. (laughs) (laughs) He's blushing. (laughs) You are really blushing. Well, that's that's correct. <laughs> the blushing and the the letters as well. Uh, so, um, what's in there? Well, the uh, there's pretty some. You've probably got lots of cases that are in there. Some the, interesting cases you tried. Yeah. The uh, well, <clears throat> I can't have anything that would violate the attorney-client privilege, so I don't have any oh. private law law cases. But I do have uh, various records from the public cases. I have some of the raw notes that I I wrote in the field uh, in Vietnam, and uh, some that I typed up. And typing is awful, and the handwriting is awful. But I'd I'd send the, send those notes or the terrible handwriting home to Roger Armbrust, and he'd read them and edit them up, and they became. So I ordered your book, Arkansas's Men at War. Men at War, but it didn't arrive in time for me to read it. I'm, I wanted to have you Doesn't sign it. Doesn't take long, and it's got pictures. <laughs> how, how many pages is it? Uh, it's a little over a hundred. Um, I wanted you to sign it. I have to get you come by and get you to autograph yep. it for me. Feel free. Um, so you have pictures of the, you with Jimmy Carter in your archives. The archivalist at UALR said that they very rarely, UALR is the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, said they very rarely have such deep personal papers given to the school that is so um, so broad. Well, the, it's, it's, it's got, uh, they asked us to write our autobiography when I was in the sixth grade at uh, Forest Park. <laughs> So it's got my baby shoes and pictures of my mother and and uh, father and all sorts of stuff like that and 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 my handwriting uh, and it uh, so it 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 goes all the way back to stuff like that uh, and uh, you know I was, I was delighted to give it to them it's it's uh, stored downtown and they they've uh, taken pictures of it in some fashion with their their technology mm-hmm. so uh, it stores but it's it's a it's a lot of stuff i hope my kids won't be embarrassed by any of it <laughs> i don't i don't think they will jim guy tucker thank you for being a shining example of never give up work hard public service honesty you are the one of the most honest 
what you see is what you get kind of guys I've ever read about. I absolutely enjoyed learning about you, and I got you a gift. I maybe should have put China in here. This is a desk set of the U.S. flag, Arkansas flag, Oklahoma, because you were born in Oklahoma. And the last one is Indonesia. And you say that, Indonesia. It's oh, almost a flag and banner. It is. You say, how do you say Indonesia? Indonesia. Indonesia. Surabaya, yeah. Jakarta, Jopabotabek. I don't even know what any of those are. <laughs> That's because he's been living overseas a long time. Thank you for spending time with us. To our listeners, we hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that whatever it is, it will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. We've got great news from the Dreamland Ballroom. Dancing into Dreamland is back for the 11th year. That's right, 11th annual Dancing into Dreamland happens on February 12th, 2022. They're changing up the formula a bit with a Valentine's Gala right there in the Dreamland Ballroom. Don't worry, all the things you love about the long-standing fundraiser are still in the mix. A real night of revelry in the centenarian structure, culminating around a friendly dance competition. Food, drink, a silent auction. Attendees will have the pleasure of viewing several spectacular dances, and varying genres will fill the night. You'll be able to vote for your favorites via text. It's a very fun evening. Dancing into Dreamland. And not the least important thing is it's a terrific fundraiser for this extraordinary historic venue. A panel of celebrity judges will pick their favorite act and they'll be awarded a special cash prize. Dancing into Dreamland is back February 2022. You've been listening to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.